I've had this one on the books for a little while. I meant to edit it, send it off to you, and know that it was already in your hands weeks ago. And then I got a call and learned how quickly my father's recent battle with prostate cancer had taken a downward turn. He passed away on November 14th. And while I'm still preparing for an upcoming funeral and memorial service and his burial, there was a part of me that felt like I wanted to experience something that was part of my normal routine, which is why it was such a blessing to edit this great conversation with an amazing, talented artist, actor, writer, director, producer, and someone who is pioneering new ground in scripted audio. Jack Bowman, for me, was a wonderful reminder of the things that we can do to maybe attain just a little bit more of that legacy, that immortality, that the works we create and put out into the world can offer to thousands or even just one. Join me now for a great conversation with an amazing, talented artist, one who I was very grateful for all the time he had to share. And I'm going to laugh my way right into this introduction. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and today I am very lucky to sit down with a gentleman named Jack Bowman, who is going to tell you about circles, and along the way, we'll see if we can create our own circle as well. Jack, how are you today, sir? I'm very good, Seth. How, how, are you, how, how is it over there? How are you doing? Uh, no complaints from me. We're gradually shifting into October, fall, cooler temperatures, but we still have some moments of lingering summer heat. It might pop up for a couple hours and then go, but it's a lovely transition. Not like we're being, uh, you know, heralded in by a, a slew of storms or something else like that. So really beautiful day to be talking with you. Um, oh, fantastic. Uh, it is. And for yourself, you know, you're, you're in the later hours, uh, sort of uh, coming to the end of your day. How has it been? Uh, well, we, we've just gone back from daylight uh, into daylight saving hours. So uh, the clocks have jumped back an hour and literally it's like on the clock. It's cold. It's wet. It's miserable. <laughs> there are brown leaves on the floor. And uh, the British summer, the British summer resigned about four weeks ago. So uh, <laughs> it was to be expected. Uh, well, I mean, I say normally the British summer, you know, we, we don't have a good reputation for weather here, but normally the British summer sort of tails away and you have the odd warm day. Uh, but no, this year, someone just went, screw you. It walked out on its job over one night. And I don't think we'll see it again to next year. So um... <laughs> I understand. I lived for a time in San Francisco, which is famous for having that saying about it, which is the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. And uh, <laughs> that understanding of the fact that it's, it's July and it can be freezing and people go, I don't understand what's happening. You go, yeah, if you live here, you do. And otherwise, it's just a strange mystery. Sure. <laughs> talk, talk, talk to a Scotsman. They would completely understand. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I work with two Scotsmen and they told me the same joke, which is, uh, uh, pl please enjoy the 22nd of July in Scotland. I said, what's that? And I said, summer. <laughs> So 
That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty funny. They both are like, hey, you probably haven't heard this one before. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, you know, Jack, I, I love the fact that we're starting off with comedy because when you first introduced me to uh, the project you're working on right now, which is called mm-hmm. Circles, I was really uh, impressed by the degree of suspense. And yet these little moments that were lovely and lightly humorous, even in the first trailer that I heard, I, what's the balance like when you know that you want to make something suspenseful and yet there's a need like for every drama or tragedy, there must be some comedy for every comedy. There must be that balance of a little bit of tragedy. Mm. Uh, tell me how we can talk about that as a nice way of entering into a conversation about circles. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think, uh, just, just to give you a little prefix on this, I think the thing I always remembered was, um, we have a very famous television writer over here called Russell T Davies. And he's probably best known for, he's the guy who rebooted Dr. Who Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant, et cetera, originally. Um, And he was primarily known as being uh, quite a, you know, he'd been a children's TV writer and uh, he'd written things like queer as folk. Um, But it was always like an intense amount of comedy in his drama. He did some very high concept stuff like The Second Coming. If you've ever seen that, that's that's a brilliant uh, miniseries with Christopher Eccleston where um, he finds out, uh, Steve uh, Eccleston's character finds out he is the son of God and he is the second coming. And yet, you know, for the first first 90 minutes of it, including the cliffhanger, it's screechingly hilarious. And I always remembered his words where Russell Russell said, uh, one one great mistake to make is to assume that... um, is to assume that comedy is uh, comedy is funny and drama, by comparison, is tragic, and that's what a lot of people do. They will treat drama as grim, depressing, tragic, whereas you know most things in life, life can be screechingly hilarious in the face of terrible pain, and terrible pain can come out of uh, great moments of levity. So it's it's always about remembering that you know if. With Circles in particular, um, which is this four-part horror series we've done over the global lockdown, it was like, I remember Brendan said to me, I need to keep this tone real. I want it grounded. I don't want the horror played up. I don't want it stylized. I don't want it heightened. And the second you ground it, you're going to naturally find the realism. And and the, the, the realism of life is that, you know, sometimes you can burst into laughter in the middle of a funeral something hysterical happens or you know you can be in the middle of a a children's party and there's a great tragedy so you know a good drama is not just tragedy um and at times a great comedy uh should not just be funny um we have like one of our biggest longest running sitcoms over here in the uk was called only fools and horses and i always cite this as an example it's about two lovable losers who are always out to make a quick buck every single week. And in that show, what is very, very clever, every single episode is a Greek tragedy because things fall apart more and more and more and more from them the closer they get to getting rich. And every, every series, there's one episode where they win and they win small. So you don't lose hope in them. But you're actually laughing at their misery and their misfortune and the tragedy. Um, so it, it's like, it's, it's just remembering that balance that, uh, you know, you don't, if you see a funny line, you don't play it for a laugh. If you see a tragedy, you don't play it for the tears. 
you just you just make sure that you know you, you write it and like like Brendan did on circles with his writers room with the two gyms um you write it real and you play it real and then naturalism will come out of that well that's a lovely introduction to you know circles and also so much of what was informing it while you were working on it and and these ideas that you wanted to keep um kind of in the forefront tell me how circles began uh, as you you mentioned you know you've alluded to that it's a four chapter series and that it was inspired and maybe for the most part uh, possible because of the lockdown Sure. So what happened was I've been building a project here in the UK where um, I've been taking new writers across the world to start formulating things like audio fiction pilots. Um, And Brendan Connolly, who created Circles, he pitched me a pilot script uh, about nine months ago, which I really, really loved. And we were working on getting it made. And we still are. It's just we've had this whole... Uh, lockdown thing sort of take up nine months of the year um, and he pitched me his script and I absolutely loved it so we, we'd been in talks about doing that on another project you know just just mulling along as, as a producer I have a slate I have writers and we're working on, on all this content and we got about three weeks into lockdown and I've got to say lockdown has not been particularly restful because uh, it only took a couple of days before actors were like ringing me up saying how do I set up a home studio um then production companies like literally from er- every everywhere across across the world started ringing me up uh, that's lesson number one if you leave your phone number on linkedin <laughs> and, what you, and what you do is good at a crisis your phone is going to get very busy um so brendan rang me up and he said i've got this idea and he pitched circles to me about four friends trapped in a safe in their own safe space only communicating via phone because 15 years beforehand they'd unleashed a demon defeated the demon but now the demon is coming back and it was just one of those brilliant moments where i went oh wow i can actually i can actually this this is my weird superpower i don't know how it will save the world but i can see sound and i just saw how the podcast was sound okay i know that's that's a weird contradiction but it was just it flashed through my head and all these dots started joining and i went I could do this da, 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 no, I could talk to this, this this but the thing was i didn't have a studio and I didn't have a cast, and we didn't have scripts. So what we did was uh, Brendan took on uh, Jim Field and James McDonald as co-writers. So they ran a writer's room, and on the strength of uh, Brendan's previous scripts, I knew I could trust him just to crack on, make those scripts work, and they did. And in the meantime, what I'd done, I'd been at PodFest in March in Florida, and uh, I met people like uh, Travis Van Graaff and Casey Wayland, um, who do really great audio fiction content. And uh, basically, I, I spent two weeks having agreed to make circles, having to learn how I was going to do it, because I'm very much used to having a studio environment, which we couldn't do because it was a lockdown. Couldn't have people in, couldn't have them traveling. People were stuck in their own homes. So then the challenge became, okay, what do I need to do? So uh, I spent two weeks uh, working with Travis and then he recommended uh, Hem Cleveland to me. And that was about me schooling and learning how to basically be an armchair director over Zoom. Because the one thing I wanted was there, there are a couple of routes you can do this right now. If you're looking at creating audio fiction, you could like send your scripts to 12 actors, do it like uh, say the white fall. You get those actors to record lines in different ways and they all come in and you stitch them together. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I'm a company man. I, lo- I love the company of actors. I love that uh, environment with, uh, you know, trusting six, seven, eight, twelve, twenty-four actors just messing around, uh, making my day. Um, <laughs> so it was about how to build a virtual studio environment, which is the route I went down. So while I was learning to do that, the scripts were coming together, and then we were twin tracking that as well with the casting, which went global. So. Uh, we ended up with some cast from California, some cast from Florida, uh, the rest from the UK, but they were spread out across uh, four cities across the UK. Um, and it just became a massive logistics issue of pulling all, all of this together in the space of about three or four weeks, I think. And then we ended up uh, recording live over four nights in the UK to make the time difference work between California and London. Um and uh, we just, you know, we we were working through Zoom, but the actors were engineering their own lines. Uh, so I was like, as, as much as you're monitoring me, listening now, that this this was how it was working, and that's kind of how the project came about. And it, I don't think, you know, you say, you know, talk about turning disadvantages into advantages. You know, it, I never think before lockdown would have considered a virtual studio. You know, using US actors in the UK or vice versa is incredibly difficult if you do it in person, if you do it the traditional way. Um, try and so, you know, some some of the, some of the actors in circles, it's like I'm bleeding lucky I got them. You know, Beth Air is very much in demand, and um, the, there's that slight kicker where you know, you know, they they you know, they can't do other work, so actors are free they're available and you know someone like beth steps in to take on the role of lexi i mean i couldn't believe it when she sent an audition tape in it was like oh my god uh, so <laughs> you know um but it, it ended up being a and the other thing as well to say is for me the appeal of doing it and doing this way is that i think very early on that you know we're all aware that this situation is going to drag on you know, we're getting over the shock now. We're learning how to live with it. But it is going to have a massive impact on film, theatre, television. There's still no theatre in the UK, which is a which is a tragedy. Um, but as, as my colleague, Fred Greenhouse from Dugas Media says, us audio types, we're, we're massive adapters. We, we've always been able to adapt and change. You know, uh, you know we're, we're the people who hit rubber mallets on cabbages for the sound of a punch right so we, we can always find ways to make and tell these stories and uh, this this is this is how it's come about now but um you know it was like you know if if this is going to be the situation for a good long while what does it take to actually execute a story like this on a on a scripting level a, a casting level a production level a post-production level and a distribution level so it was a great, great big experiment all round, but you know, we we took a long time. As long as the scripts were being written, a long time planning the execution of those scripts, which is only fair to the writing team, of course. But you know, uh, to 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 fail to plan is to plan to fail. Um, and we just, I just had to go right. This is got, this is going to be a new way of production, and I need to know this because this could be the means of production I'm stuck with for two years. So, dive in. Let's do it. Let's see who we get and take it from there. So many gifts that came out of it. I mean, you were just describing this idea of what it was like to score an amazing actor that you had thought to yourself probably wouldn't normally be available. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I like literally like I, I looked at that part and I went, I, that's the kind of Beth Air part. But you know, Beth Beth is very like she's she's like a you know I joked on the uh, Mediva podcast a couple of weeks ago that <clears throat> Beth is like you know the queen of indie acting podcasting. You know what I mean? She does wooden overcoats and, uh, you know, you name it. She's she's virtually in every podcast series going here in the UK because she is that brilliant. Um, and, you know, again, like going back to this whole Russell T Davies thing, I mean, like when Beth, Beth sent her audition tape in, it must have been like the moment Russell T Davies was playing Doctor Who and Christopher Eccleston asked to be put on the list. It's like, what? Okay. Yes, all right. Um, but that said, Beth was probably the only actor I knew uh, who had any sort of profile who actually asked to be in circles. Uh, the rest of it, we did blind casting. So we literally just put out a call and I didn't look up actors. I just said, send in the tape and I went on the voice quality alone. Um, so we just took that opportunity to say, look, this is going to be a blind cast as well. Um doesn't matter who you are just send your tapes in and we just 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 went on the, the vocal quality with the cast we ended up with now i'm curious because i can only imagine i mean one you brought up so many different things i'm going to try and wrap around back to okay. <laughs> um but i also am just aware of the fact that you know one of the things that you're trying to do is to prepare and plan and yet, logistically, there's so many things that you haven't anticipated yet because a virtual studio is so unlike the physical studio that you're familiar with. And then there's all the unexpecteds. I can honestly say I had to mute a number of different times from my side of the mic. In fact, I think, okay, now I've got noise in there. Hold on one second. <laughs> and there's uh, some things you can predict. <laughs> And other yes. things you can't. So if you've got actors from different parts of the world, uh, right now I just have you know something simple like a door opening or water running in the background. They're trying to control their environment, but you know you might have a car drive by in the background while we're recording. Someone else might have the same thing. What was uh, either some of if, if you know depends on which is the easiest question for answering. If you can answer both, great. What would be some of the most likely comedic sort of events that would be unpredictable uh and what were <laughs> some of the other sort of things where you're thinking to yourself like never in a million years would i have imagined a virtual studio would include the following problems like how did these sort of logistical uh scenarios present themselves where you couldn't plan for it but it's happening and now you have to deal with it well we we did have uh we did have a recording go over i think either a friday or a saturday which was the 13th of the month and i'm always very very superstitious of uh, friday the 13th simply because it does seem to be the one day where i get a lot of bad luck um i mean i, I once had a computer had a completely irreversible failure on friday the 13th like uh, oh, wow. years years ago and uh, the next day i booted it up and it was fine that'll make an impression yeah it does um so but i remember we had a recording over the uh, over i think one of the dates was the 13th and uh, one of the cast her um because they were all engineering their own sound files as they were recording um because we weren't using the we were recording the zoom but each actor was individually recording on their own daw at home and uh just literally one of the daws kept falling apart and i could just hear sarah bless her under the sarah petard under her breath just go 
You know, there's, there's no, absolutely no getting away with it if she can't uh, she can't record her own voice. Um, so there, there was that, and I suppose, um, uh, yeah. Okay, so there, there was there was a moment where I just wanted to do a screen grab for the record. So like I I, I switched off uh, the camera very deliberately on the Zoom because uh, you know when it comes to audio acting an audio performance, you're always trying to get the actor to use their ears, not their eyes. Because eye, eye contact is instinctively bred into all of us as, uh, as, as, as human beings. But it's also especially important when you're on stage, you know, an eye contact, a break of eye contact is incredibly powerful. Now, believe it or not, that does not register that well on audio because it's about your relationship with the microphone and it's uh, your voice with the microphone and the call and response you're receiving through your ears. And uh, so I very deliberately switched off the camera. But I asked, um, I asked the cast, you know, oh, I'm just going to switch on the Zoom and I want everyone to do a scary face just so we could do a screen grab. And I was like, a couple of people said, just give me a minute. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got to wonder, were they recording naked? I don't know. <laughs> Were they doing their hair? Were they fixing their makeup? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> so you switch on the camera and it's like a brief silence. And it's like, okay, well, okay we're good now. We're good now. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, there, there can be little little moments uh, along the way uh, like that that you wouldn't, you wouldn't get in a proper studio environment. But uh, I, think, I think the big thing was that I was just trying to keep things clear move them along because you had to remember for the uk team they were working 9 p.m till 12 a.m on that we were doing three hour blocks over four nights so it wouldn't necessarily be so bad for say someone like tau because they're uh they're in um uh california you know what i mean east coast daytime uh but for you know uh, the, the team in the uk especially during something quite stressful during lockdown um you know they're working they're working nights so we we kind of just had to keep it nice and brisk and not too indulgent so people could go home get some rest come back the next night have a break do you know you know what i mean it's just like you know making sure you 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 would do that in a studio environment anyway um but i think i think the big thing is we, we just had to make sure it was it was as efficient as possible so no one would get unnecessarily tired or worn out for the sake of it um and every day we came down on time so uh we got it right we got the planning right so <laughs> well it doesn't, definitely doesn't happen like that it doesn't happen <laughs> like that all the time trust me <laughs> I, under- I understand no in fact the one thing that i can think of is how many times i've had to record an episode for myself of i i host this podcast and a few others mm-hmm. and finding the time of day when my neighbors won't fire up their lawnmowers or, um, yeah. you know, because the middle of the day seems like, oh, it should be quiet. Everyone's off to work. But some people's jobs are in your neighborhood. Some people have jobs where they're doing lawn maintenance or involved in deliveries outside. And it could be like, I'm in the middle of, you know, recording and then there's a and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. That's not going to work well. Or the delivery truck or some other element. And then it's I like, know. hey, maybe, huh? I know. No, I agree. Because, um, <laughs> Uh, Sarah, Sarah Golding, who plays Rosemary in episode one, 
uh, she asked me in re- she she did a part in return for me doing a little voice voice piece for her. And I, I threw in my acting union card a long time ago. Trust me, uh, I, I surrendered I surrendered my acting badge and gun to uh, the uh, union. <laughs> to, to concentrate turned it on over did you <laughs> yeah i did i mean I, I i joked but i was what i called a moderately unsuccessful actor so uh i hadn't done voice work for a long time and obviously i've got a small baby or i've got two small children but uh i was trying to lay down the recording at um you know 11 o'clock at night when i think oh, i'd be nice and quiet and then you've got the baby monitoring in the background is the baby gonna cry added to the fact <laughs> um i live i live in elstree boreham wood by the film studios but between us and the film studios there is a fire station so like is a, is a fire truck gonna pull out oh and i forgot to mention next to the uh, fire station there's an ambulance station so <laughs> You make me feel oh. so much better. I live by an airport and there's a train about six blocks away from me. Train yeah, we, tracks that run by. We, we we got a small aerodrome nearby as well. And the police station is over the road. So it's like, um, it's like Siren City here. So yeah, I mean, but fortunately, like, fortunately, a lot of the actors, they have really good solid home studios. Uh, they could, uh, you know, in, insulate them from the noise and, uh, you know, that that sound quality is going to be a, like literally two hundred percent better than mine, but no no one needs to worry about what I'm saying because uh, you don't hear it in circles. It's all about them. So <laughs> there is a blessing for you on that side. You know that you're doing the majority of the listening and monitoring and just sort of tracking and you know checking the quality and also you know just overall like you know your job for the most part was to mute your mic and listen on the headphones and sort of track everything and then chime in when it was appropriate so as long as they can have a quiet environment to record from you're getting great sound and that allows mm. you guys to just try and get the best work in each period yeah absolutely but i mean the one downside to not actually being there is that um actors are always they you know they they always are a little bit insecure because they don't know if what they do is any good um you know it's like was that good was that fine and you know part part of it as well is being on top of that monitoring to go right i know what you need there you know what i mean and just give them the steer um because sometimes i've, I've seen this happen before that you know you, you can have a bad day in any job and you, you can you know be a software engineer but one day you just can't write the right bit of code do you know what i mean and you go home mm-hmm. and it'll be fine the next day but with actors, there's always that pressure that they have to get it right because it's time and money. You know, they can't go back and try again because schedules move on. And, you know, if if I was in a studio environment and someone wasn't getting it, then, you know, you could, you could take five minutes out, take them out, you know, give them a hug or, you know, give, give, give them the chat they need just to see what's wrong. Can you fix it? Um, and I suppose that's one of the downsides to the system that, you know, just, you know, if you can, if you can, the thing is you can hear if an actor is unraveling, you can hear that. Um, but in a weird way, it's on a group Zoom call. So it's like, how, how do you, how do you manage that and keep them on track and give, give that actor the insurance they need to, to stay on track when you, you know, in some cases we were like 6,000 miles away, you know, or, you know, but that said, the, the nearest actor to me may as well be, up in London may as well be 6,000 miles away in that situation, you know? So, so looking after, you know, their mental health and keeping them rested and focused um, is also, you know, part, part, part and parcel of, of this kind of gig as well. So. 
And it must be so challenging because as you said, in a group environment, it's not like you can just pull someone aside and give them a few minutes uh, on your own, give everybody else a chance to take a break and, and do something else. You're also, you know, on that group call one, but two, you've got people who, depending on the time of night, uh, for them at their recording time, they're just hoping to get to bed at least an hour or the, the hour they planned on. And for the mm -hmm. others, they've blocked out a certain amount of time and who knows what commitments they had before and what they might have afterwards. So yeah, that idea behind timing. And also there's the confidence side. Um, you know, when you talked about the uncertainty, all I could think of was all my life as a writer, I, uh, I've experienced that that feeling of uncertainty. Did I do well? How did I do? What's the response going to be? Uh, as sure. any you know, creative person will. I was really lucky once to meet um, the mother of a writer. Uh, his name's Ethan Kanan, and he went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he had a, I think maybe one of his projects turned into a movie, but he's more well known for writing some really great short stories. But I realized who she was, and it was just a simple little detective mystery. Uh, and when I did, I said, I believe I know who you are, and I believe your son is this writer. And she looked at me and she said, oh, you poor thing you're a writer, aren't you? And I said, oh, 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 yes. Is it that obvious? And she goes, well, I mean, now, because you know who my son is and very few people do unless they're actually writers or in that profession. And she goes, but your lives are filled with such uncertainty. And I know mm -hmm. what he's experienced and I would never want to. And I can only imagine that um, for any creative pursuit, whether it's an art that's physically displayed on pen and paper or with ink, or whether it's an art that's physically demonstrated through something like acting, you're you're trying to you know beat that uncertainty or rise above that or even just meet it with your performance with your art, and to lose that certainty to not be able to sort of find that that firm footing in which to deliver your craft, um, it can be a very unnerving situation and the ability that you might you know, be able to recognize it and step in. It's got to be a challenge to know what your limitations are in this sort of virtual studio environment. I can only uh, imagine the struggle. Uh, absolutely. And, it, you know, it'd be, it'd be a struggle anywhere. But, I mean, fortunately, apparently I have a good pair of ears. Um, <laughs> and, and, and someone taught me a, a really lovely, um, really lovely thing to look out for, which is that um, uh, you, you know how it is as a writer. Because it's, you know, particularly when you have to turn, it, turn in that first draft for some sort of critiquing or analysis, etc. It's, it, 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 you break out in sweats because it's like uh, going back in time to, to turning in your homework to school, right? It's like, uh, sweaty palms, please don't, don't hate what I've done. Um, <laughs> and actually, there, there is a thing actors do, which shows uh, the same insecurity in their performance, and they express it vocally. And it's a very, very subtle thing. But uh, I worked with this uh, extraordinary uh, performance coach back in my acting days called Jeremy Stockwell. And he taught me this little uh, little thing. It was, it was literally, I think indirectly, he made me a better, he, he turned me into a better director than actor through working with him. But he said, particularly with actors, when they get insecure, it's like, um, Hi, I'm an actor. I love actor. I know a part. I know, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to do some beautiful acting. And as I get nearer to the stage, oh my God, I start to panic and I start to sweat. And it's turning in my homework in front of an audience. Oh God, they're going to hate me. So I go to do acting, 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 acting. I'll come off the stage and then, yeah, yeah, I love acting. I love acting. 
Yeah, acting's brilliant. I, it's just, I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's just that in that nutshell. When, when you start to have that sense that something is being forced or over-energized, that's when you can lock onto the moment that goes, your actor doesn't get that bit. The actor doesn't understand. So part of the diplomacy is to, if you, like, particularly in this virtual studio setup where everyone's listening, is to find a way around that insecurity because you'll hear it in the performance. They'll overcompensate for a lack of understanding. And, you know, actors have to do a phenomenally difficult job. They're, you know, very, they, they, they're able to portray and carry and interpret a range of heightened emotions in artificial circumstances, but they're always trying to make intellectual sense of something emotional. If that makes sense. That's why it's always, it what's does. my motivation? Uh, you know, what's my motivation? Why am I doing this? Why, why, why? Because they need the emotions to make sense. There needs to be some intellect behind it because, you know, otherwise they can't perform it right. But that's not how life works. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we, we're a jumble all the time. Yeah, acting is about turning it into a really finely honed craft and skill. And, you know, uh, when you, when you, if you're able to identify that compensation, you immediately get that there's something the actor is not getting. And then you can very sort of just discreetly sort of make it part of the conversation. Again, I work with, uh, I did a workshop with uh, Richard Eyre, who's a very, very famous uh, British theatrical director. And he taught me um, that um, the best directors are not teachers, but students. And that's something that's always stuck with me. I'm always approaching things from a point of view of a question because question allows collaboration and collaboration allows work to be better. I'm very rarely one of those directors who has a very super singular vision of how something must be done. Uh, because one, I think that's a pathway to madness. And two, also as well, a lot of like with, with circles, for example, you know, it, it's Brendan's vision. It's Brendan's story. He's written the script. So again, stealing from Russell T Davies, we had to sit down and we had a tone meeting and let's just break all this down. And I always will sit down with the writer and say, look, you know, am I missing anything here? Is there anything you want to tell me? Any, any secrets or stuff like that? Because yes, directing is interpretive, but the interpretation has to start with the correct translation. And sometimes a writer can think something is obvious on paper, or I can look at something and not see the obvious. So approaching it from a, always been attacking the material with questions, always be attacking the performances with questions, I think is the best way to get the best work out of people. I, I love that description because it, it really highlights something you were talking about with the actor when they're not getting it, which is that they don't understand that part that they're trying to um, give to the audience, to the performance. It's that understanding. And if you're going to understand almost anything, you have to start with what you don't know, what you need to know more about. And that always comes back to questions. If, if I want to understand something, if I want to know something from someone, I have to demonstrate what I don't know through the asking of questions that I, I need answers to in order to know, in order to develop that understanding. So I love this idea that you're going to the writer and saying, I'm, I'm understanding this much and now I have questions that, that I hope will greater inform my understanding. And then from that, this desire to essentially pull that 
you know, uh, understanding out of all those answers and keep asking the questions, you know, continually mm -hmm. look, the, the, the goal here is for me to not have any more questions. So I'm going to keep asking until I've got answers. Um, I can only imagine you've developed this over a period of time. Uh, sure. It's like a home, uh, finely honed skill. And I know that when I was getting the chance to just learn a little bit about you, I, I saw that you had over 16 years of experience. Is that including everything? Is there a point that we can go back that's even earlier and say, so this is where it really started? Oh, I, I can tell you exactly. The, the, oh, this the, is like, fun. <laughs> like the, 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 exact, uh, uh, the exact timeline jump, um, you know, how, how, how it all ended up here. Then take um, me to uh, the beginning and tell me about this timeline, Joe. I'd love to hear it. Okay, so, so when I was a kid, uh, I used to draw a lot. Uh, literally, I was uh, always doodling, tracing, painting, whatever. And I, again, I was a little bit hit and miss. Sometimes I could do an exceptionally brilliant picture, and other times they were just just rubbish or just garbage, like you know, weeks on end. But the point is, I obviously had an aptitude and an interest in um, in in drawing so uh when the dreaded uh what, what we have over here I, i'm not sure like yeah i guess is the equivalent of the sats in the us but when the gcses rolled around and it was time at the age of 14 to decide what i was going to do for the rest of my life um you know my parents were saying oh you like drawing do something in art do something in art you're good at art and I went, okay, right, fine. But it didn't, didn't feel like it was, a, it didn't feel like a particularly uh, happy thing for me. And in fact, even these days, I don't, only in lockdown, I started doodling again. I don't really doodle, even though I know I have a talent for it. So long story short, uh, as, as some of your listeners have probably, uh, probably sussed, uh, I, I do like a bit of Doctor Who. I always have done, even going back to the old days. And I went to a, 1993, I was 14, and I went to uh, a signing for the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who uh, at, at a Doctor Who shop in the east of London. And they were handing out little tickets at the door and I went, fine, whatever. I just wanted to get in and get my, uh, get my VHS cassettes. Uh, do, do you remember plastic cassettes? <laughs> um, I wanted oh, to get yes. those. Oh, yes. Uh, you had NTSC over there, didn't you? But um, we had VHS in the UK, and I, I wanted—I just wanted them signed in and out and done. You know what I mean? Meet Sophie Aldred, get her autograph, off we go, boom, job done. Sophie Aldred was uh, Sylvester McCoy's companion in the late eighties, and um, did. But they were taking the slips back in, and it was for a price draw, so I filled it in. Forgot nothing. You didn't even look at it. Just put my name down at the door. Boom, went home. Well. Uh, had a trip to Disneyland planned mid-September, you know, as you do as a kid, so we're going to Florida, and a letter drops through the door saying, congratulations, you've won two tickets to see Sophie Aldred perform in a musical at the Theatre Royal Haymarket in London's West End called Lust, with Dennis Lawson, who uh, you, you guys probably know him as Wedge from Star Wars, right? And uh, I was like, oh, brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Um, that's amazing. Except the date was when we were on holiday. So we rang up. We got the tickets rescheduled. Uh, we came back from Florida. And it was going to be the following Saturday. And on the Wednesday, they announced the show was going to close. It's like, what? Okay, and we quickly checked. And the Saturday was going to be the last day of the show. And we got a matinee ticket. So we were going to see the second to last version of the show. And it was like, see the show, go behind the scenes, meet Sophie backstage, all this kind of stuff. 
who oh. I hadn't been to see a theatre show since I was like four. Maybe I've been to see like a children's pantomime show or something like that. And um, went along and I was blown away. It was just like the most magical thing. It was the first time I'd ever seen theatre. Like proper full-on musical and all this kind of stuff. And I just walked out going, I'm going to be an actor. That one day, that one prize draw uh, literally just, just changed my tack. I had to wait two years because my parents had already enrolled me in art class for two years for examinations and stuff. But as soon as I got past art, jumped into school theatre. From school theatre, jumped into amateur dramatics. Then over to university to study drama along with um, theatre administration, which I think gives me my business side. And came out of that uh, literally seven years later uh, with a degree in, in performance, ready to be an actor. And for the first two, three years, I actually did quite well. I worked pretty constantly, but then the work dried up. And that was the point someone said to me, look, why don't you write your own play and put on your own showcase? Which I did. So I spent 18 months uh, honing a play and that was called Frozen. And that went on in uh, the Etcetera Theatre in Camden, in North London, central North London. And it did very, very well. People very much liked play. But what happened was people stopped introducing me as an actor and they started introducing me as a writer. But I, I, I got very upset. I wrote the play to be an actor, not to be a writer. Um, but what happened coincidentally at the same time was uh, my day job was working in the London Dungeon. Um, and there was a great actors company in there and like a lot of really frustrated talent um, that eventually went on to do really great work. I mean, like, you know, people like Matt Berry, who won a BAFTA for Toast of London, uh, Ben Whitehead, who's now taken over Wallace from Wallace and Gromit. Um, you know, so there was a lot of really, really talented, brilliant people in there, um, in that actors company, just like doing our thing for 3000 people a day across uh, London's <laughs> East End. Um, so, um, but Mariel Ranika Temple was one of those and she was a massive, massive uh, radio acting um, talent. She'd been a, like a drama school finalist for a BBC contract called the Carton Hobbs and not won the contract. And it was about then she started the idea, like, uh, I wonder if we could just do radio plays and put them on the internet for people to download. And that was basically the start of when we were doing what we now call scripted fiction or audio fiction podcasting. But back then, we were called online radio because the iPod still hadn't been invented yet. So we were out there, uh, Marielle took Frozen as um, her first play for her company, Wireless Theatre. And, and that was the start of it. From there, literally, it was one of those kind of little uh, collective, collect, artistic collectives where, uh, like, if you fancy directing, you could do a bit of directing. Uh, if they need a script, they would ask you. And, you know, within two, three, four years, we just started doing live shows. We, uh, Richard O'Brien, who wrote the Rocky Horror Show, he gave us a script. Uh, two of the biggest... Um, Two of the biggest uh, theatrical actors of the UK, Timothy West and Prunella Scales, uh, asked, I was asked to write a script bespoke for them. That was Seasons. Um, and then we were getting approached by companies like 3D Horrify. So I did a couple of pieces for them, including uh, one called uh, Autopsy, which someone has only just recently informed me is a massive cult favourite of the audio community. 
but I never knew that. No one ever told me that because I wrote it under a pen name. So um, there, was, there was never anything to connect the two of us. Um, so yeah, we had this massive, massive period where we were just like writing scripts and running around with a microphone, like learning as we go. None of us were ever taught how to write, produce, direct audio content. Uh, we did get lots of help, some really great um, stalwarts of the uh, radio scene in the UK. Like, uh, you know, there was always advice from people like Cherry Cookson, Dirk Mags and that kind of stuff. And it was around about then that um, Rob Valentine reminded me that back in 2000, when I graduated from university, that I'd, re- I'd shown him a pitch for a television series based around the London legend of Spring Hill Jack. And we just looked at it and went, nah, we put it back in the drawer. And we took that pitch out and dusted it down. And we, we started to go into uh, serialized audio storytelling. Uh, rather than doing one off so that that's then was like i say the next big marker was starting uh the spring hill saga because we just set out with this idea that we could make a a dirt mags immersive level audio drama podcast series based on this old treatment which we went back and we retooled we kept the central conceit uh a man and a monster jonah smith chasing spring hill jack across 70 80 years of uh, victorian london and its history um, but, um, you know, it, it, that was, that's when things started to change a little bit because when that series landed, it, it was, it was insane because, yeah, so we started 2010. So we've been doing this like four or five years when we got to this point and suddenly it was being listened to in 50 countries worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, like we were getting fan mail and, uh, like letters from America um but it was in a weird way the problem was it was slightly too much ahead of its time because there wasn't the podcast market there is now in the u.s if that makes sense i i always joke that if you could imagine there were 10 podcast listeners in america at the time eight <laughs> of them listened to spring Hill. but the point is there were only eight but uh you know we you know we had a, we had a massive and massive response and like spring Hill got a lot more love in the u.s like uh you know we got all these awards from the u.s thrown at it whereas in the uk it was kind of like it would get the odd nomination in europe it get a, a festival circuit play for sure but it was actually you guys over there that really embraced it and embraced the work we were doing and that was followed by uh war of the world's uh war of the world's piece called dead london again uh that 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 won the gold of the war of the world's 75 contest in 2013 and that's where people like Fred greenhouse got in touch so that, that's what i call the second wave where like people in the states were actually picking up our work and it seemed because because Spring Hill was kind of a fun run around romp with monsters and and, and super villains and that kind of stuff. Um, it didn't really kind of, I think, hit the critical spot you needed to be respected in the UK, if that makes sense. But over in the US, where there hadn't been that audio tradition, uh, you know, we always got the impression that it was received as like some kind of you know, like they never heard anything like that before. Does that make sense? And it's not true because people like Dirk Mags have been doing that kind of work since the 1990s. And that was our homage to him. You know, the, the brilliant work he did on things like Voyage and uh, Batman and um, uh, American Werewolf in London, which he all did an audio, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff, that kind of um, 
that brilliant immersive audio. Um, so that Spring Hill came to an end in 2016 and that led to me doing, uh, I was moved over to do two years with Audible UK through wireless um, studio managing, producing some of their long form audio content. So if you have an Audible account, um, if anyone's listening, uh, some of the things out there you can check out are the Murder on the Orient Express with Tom Conti and Sophie Ocanado. And um, that's just an all-star cast because everyone wants to do a Christie. Um, we had that, The Dark Water Bride, which is very, very, really, really creepy and pleasant horror by Marty Ross, Arabian Nights, The Soul Breaker. So this this kind of very restrained momentum, like every year could get slightly more crazy, if that makes sense. Every, t- every year I thought I got, this is my life of figuring out. It got just that little bit more nuts the next year. And around about 2018, I think it's a big, big turning point. We're talking about time track, time time jumps here. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's when uh, the late great, Bill DeFries and Fred Greenhouse, your Dagaz Media, got in touch. And initially, what they were thinking about was um, trying to bring uh, Dagaz to, to Radio 4 for the BBC. And I went, Are you sure? Have you seen the BBC budget? Okay, right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, 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 okay, and I listened. And then, and then it was like, Okay. And then they started to explain why and what was going on. So, I, I, I met them on and off. What you I mean? They were over in the a few years previously when they'd be doing the X-Files for Audible and you know they'd gone off and done Lock and Key and you know so they were doing some really really good big tempo stuff and they said oh the podcast market over here is taking off and it's hundreds of millions of dollars out here I just suddenly went hang on this this feels like we're missing the most obvious fish in the barrel because right now in the UK we've got phenomenal phenomenal scripted audio podcast talent you know I could, I could reel off a huge list of names of people who write and execute brilliant audio fiction for the podcast space. But there is no commercial or independent uh, network over here for you to commercialize or monetize. So um, people are often scraping by, uh, you know, working at the, you know, working at the lowest possible budgets to do the best possible work. And it's not sustainable. And that's where Fred and I hit on this idea that we can actually start trying to build bridges between the UK to the US. Um, so we, we did a little internal pilot ourselves, which was, uh, we wrote, spec, wrote a spec script called Wholesale Solution, which is available on Drabblecast, episode 411, if you, if you want to check that out. Uh, but the process went so really, really well that um, Bill and Fred then rang me up and said look we've got this hush hush top secret project we're really impressed with your work on the script would you come on board and i said okay what is it and they said well we're going to do a transmedia audio drama based on the expeditionary book uh, expeditionary force book series and i went okay is this a thing and he went yeah in the us it's it's a thing and i went okay all right cool so I sort of accepted the gig and I brought aboard a, a lovely co-writer called uh, Richard Appleby because I, I don't know if you've read Expeditionary Force, but it's uh, very hard. It's quite close to the expanse. It's very hard sci-fi, hard military, uh, you know, genre cross, uh, which is not my style at all. So Richard knows his military and we, we brought together. I remember he, he said, uh, oh, I, I, I remember this. I called him up and said, look, would you help me with this? 
Christmas? And he said, yes, I'm just going to go on holiday. I'm off to New York. I'll come back and we'll talk about it when I get back. And I went, cool. And he was in New York and he sent me an email saying, I've just seen Expeditionary Forces in New York Times bestseller here in one of the, at the like one of the bookstores. Are you sure you want me for the job? It was like, well, they've got me, so let me, you know, let's, let's go, with, let's go with it from there. Um, and that that one ended up, uh, you know, that one ended up getting some insane momentum as well. You know, uh, you know, R.C. Bray, who who narrates the books, he came aboard, and he was he was an absolute sweetheart. Um, we were, you know, we spent about a year working on that one because it was a long form for Podium Publishing. Uh, and then before we know it, Kate Mulgrew was on board. Um, any X-Force fans know that she ended up playing Nagatha and yes. uh, won their hearts. Um, yes. And then, uh, you know, she, she, I've literally got it somewhere on, like on the track because I was doing the dialogue edit as well. She said, do you know who would be really great in this? My mate, Robert, uh, Robert Picardo. Do you know Bob Picardo? He was in Star Trek with me. Tell what, let me just ring him right now. <laughs> so that's, that's how Robert Picardo ended up getting cast. And then off the back of that, they got uh, Zachary Quinto and it was like, you know, just, just like, okay, mind blown. Um, you know, uh, this is, this is why I joke on my website. It, it literally did make me an accidental New York times bestseller as an author. Um, and I shall tell everyone a little secret now. Uh, what did that do to my bank balance? Not a lot, but it's a very nice label to, um, it's a very nice label to have to say that, uh, you know, I, I got a New York times bestseller uh in 2019 and in, in the midst of all this craziness um just uh you know just like going okay well, what happens now and the, the second baby was on the way and we decided to buy after you know buy an apartment um yeah it's just like what are we gonna do what we're we gonna do uh, you know because again it was, it was one of those weird things where how can i put this you get you get a little win like that, or a major win like that, or, and there's a little win here and there's a major win there, but it, it never seems to unlock what I call the fairy tale level. Do you know what I mean? It's never like that's the magical bullet that uh, make makes everything go go crazy. But we were we were so this is what I'm saying when we're in the middle of what we're going to do next, what's going to happen next, because we've got X Force out of the way and you know just trying to work out where to go from here. And that's literally the day I moved into my apartment. I remember this. I was between picking up the key, between the, the, the contracts completing and picking up the keys, moving in. An email popped to my inbox and it was from BBC Studios Audio. And they said, look, would you come in? We'd like to talk to you about joining the department to talk about podcasting. And I went, because, you know, I mean, I literally was just about to own my first apartment as a proper grown up. And then this comes in. I was like, uh, that's cool, but apartment, and I'm paying the removal men by the hour. Uh, so, never, listen, <laughs> pay a flat rate for your removal men. Never, ever pay them by the hour. Uh, so, <laughs> so, top money saving tip. <clears throat> so, I walked, literally got the keys and walked in. And literally, I walked through the door. My phone rang and it went, this is the BBC. Did you get our email? I was like, wow. yes, but I moved into my new flat um so they they invited me to come be part of their team for four months and it ended up being a nine month nine month gig and then from there uh, you know we just literally got to the end of the march when when covid struck 
and uh, like I, I was already leaving the BBC, you know, I'd been off to LA and Florida by that point, as I mentioned previously, because uh, mm-hmm. talking to you know some LA agents and that kind of stuff. Uh, as you do in LA, because you know you're British, you come over. Everyone will take a <laughs> meeting, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, poor them. They got stuck with me for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> that's, the thing, that's the thing I've noticed in LA: meetings are 30 minutes, never an hour. Um, <laughs> so, right? Yeah, half the time, twice the efficiency, right? So, right. Um, we'll just pack right, it in there. <laughs> pack it, pack it in, uh, and move you on. Uh, and you're lucky if you get five minutes later. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of come back, and that's where, when lockdown happened. And this kind of brings us almost almost up to where, where Circles is right now, where, um, you know, um, like I say, I, I've, I was, you know, because I've spent a lot, because uh, with one baby on the way, and uh, a slightly older one who was still too young, if that makes sense, Basically, uh, between X Force was a big dog job, so a lot of every a lot of what I've been doing around that one huge script have been like podcast consultancy, um, uh, which you know actually pays the bills better than you know writing fiction. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I've been doing consultancy and that kind of stuff. So I, I was I was kind of very very happily chugging along with that and that actually massively continued into lockdown as well i was picking up a lot of consultancy jobs because a lot of production companies are having to pivot so uh, i had uh least uh, you know like i say 20 30 actors speak to me about home studio so that was fine and then it started scaling up from there to like small small uk audio indies for like looking at you know how they how they could adapt television production companies were ringing me up about how they could switch all uh, their their visual content to audio and then uh, th- there was this one call again never leave your number on linkedin uh so i was it was 10 it was 10 o'clock at night and my phone rang and i went hello because it was an international number and i was like hello and i went hi we're calling from major hollywood studio which we should just call for the sake of this podcast at the current time <laughs> Studio X, and I went, okay, cool, hi. I said, can we talk about this audio thing, please? And it was like, yeah, okay, sure. Um, so that goes to show you, I mean, it's still happening to this day that, you know, I get emails from people going, uh, like, you know, we, 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 we want to pivot into audio fiction, we want to pivot into audio drama, now it's, uh, now it's having to become a thing because film, television, and theatre are so gridlocked or if not, completely ground to a hall um apparently i'm the guy you google that's 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 the story i'm learning uh so um so all of this consultancy was going on but and I, don't get me wrong i love it and so if anyone ever wants to follow up after this podcast is is uh, is out there I'll, I'll tell you how to get a hold of me if anyone wants to talk scripted uh, podcast content um but it was just when Brendan came along at the same time with the opportunity to make something and make something for the podcast space that, you know, it was just too good to turn up because I, I, I've joked about this a lot, but genuinely it's true. Um, do, 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 you, do, you, do you like your Star Trek? Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Oh, yes, sir. So, so, <laughs> right. Right. So the, a combination of two images here, but first of all, Wrath of Khan, when... Spock gives Kirk 
back the Enterprise because of the emergency. Right. And then Star Trek Generations, which is not the greatest Star Trek movie, but that moment where Kirk almost takes the seat of the Enterprise B when Captain (laughs) Harry runs out the door to save the ship. He says, no, no, I'll save the ship instead. It was like, I suddenly realized because I'd sort of gone from actor to writer to director to producer, uh, and I'm now exec producing some things as well. I've gone up that ladder. I suddenly suddenly realized that, uh, you know, Circles circles is like the emergency in Star Trek 2, right? It it was like, you know what, it's my chance to get back in that chair as an admiral. I can sit here and be a captain again. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I'd started around about last year hankering for the fact that I think I need to get back to directing. Um, but, you know, being being someone who produces, I'm producing a lot. I've got a lot of content underway. We had this whole uh, secret project with all my writers. So it was just like, great. I, I can sit here and, uh, you know, try to try not to get uh, slightly beaten by Khan just because I'm back in the chair. But uh, <laughs> it's just like, I, you know, I, I wanted to be back in that chair. And, you know, lockdown, you know, it stopped everything else. So, so why not sit there and actually say, right, I'm going to take this piece. I'm going to direct it. Uh, and I'm going to take that, take that responsibility back on for the first time. I think I, let's think, I don't think I've directed anything aside from my voice reels, I don't think I've directed anything since 2016. So it'd been four years since I last been calling the shots. Because um, what seems to happen is apparently I'm competent enough to keep pushing up the ladder. So <laughs> um, keep, keep going there on these sort of sideways but upwards promotions. So it's like, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity to, to get back in the, the, you know, the director's chair and do what I really, really love doing, which is like, work with actors get those performances work the scripts and you know my, my next favorite part is is work on the sound design you know I, i'm absolutely obsessed with uh sound and you know just just sorry i'll be talking a long time but uh you know it's it's a case of when you look at sound design you know understanding people are starting to understand that a podcasting is a unique delivery method for telling a story uh it's not it's not radio it's not a piece of you know radio can be treated as wallpaper no matter how good a song or a play is it's broadcast on it people can ignore it uh you know people are choosing to put your play in their ears through their podcast player um, and that demands a, a phenomenal approach to the sound design and the storytelling from scratch. You always got to be thinking about the immersive nature, the intimacy, uh, and the truth of the truth of it all. How's it going to sound? How is this experience? What is this going to trigger in the in the minds and the imagination of the listener? One, you never have to apologize for talking as long as you need to explain anything. People tune in. They hear me all the time. They're, they've heard enough of me. Uh, they want to hear who I'm talking to. So for starters, always keep that in mind. If I ask you a question, man, I, people are going to love the answer and they're going to love a long answer. They're going to love the fact that you've invested this much time in explaining it and you're willing to reveal this much about yourself and your process. And let me just add on the Star Trek thing. 
Generations wasn't that great, but you hinted at something that I remember being one of my favorite lines. I think it's when they're in the dream sequence and it's horseback riding. And Kirk turns to Picard and he says, whatever they do, don't ever let them get you out of that chair. I don't care if it's a promotion to be the most important person in the world. Don't ever let them get Mm. you out of that chair. Never give up that chair. And I love that idea that he was expressing was like, you know, that, that senior person talking to someone coming up behind them saying, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. Never lose sight. Never lose that focus. Never, you know, forget that experience. Because once you give it up, man, how do you get it yeah. back? You, you got it back. You actually got the chance to get back in that chair now with circles. And I also think you brought up some amazing stuff, like the idea about when I was listening to the trailers for circles, the first thing that caught my attention was, uh, the one that I was listening to, the first one I listened to, the young girl is talking to a friend on the phone. So there's mm-hmm. that audio, audio experience of hearing a phone call and, you know, the, the, the recognition that it's different from the person who's speaking into your ear as they're talking to the person on the phone and the voice that's coming through on the phone and then all the details that spun out of that. What do you have? Let's go ahead and solve a problem and talk about what we're about to create, which is a great scene about creating a circle and how I was very aware of that audio direction that was occurring and how important it was. Um, It's really clear that you have this amazing understanding. And I want to talk about a couple of things that I'm Mm -hmm. curious about that are part of that. And the first is this beautiful quote that you have that I wrote it down. I'm looking at it. I can't choose if it's your website or or my writing that I'm going to reference, but it's this great quote that says, it's very simple. I learned the most important lesson at wireless theater. You live or die by the quality of your work. That seems like a very foundational statement to direct towards others and also to reference when it comes to why you're doing something and the importance you place upon it. This is about making it or not. And that's something that you describe as being the most important lesson that you could have picked up through wireless theater. Can you elaborate in any way, um, either how you came to that understanding or, or when you recognize that as a, a great reference point to direct others towards? Oh, well, I suppose that, I think, and that came from Marielle. I mean, it was like she, she, was, she was taught before starting wireless or very early on, someone said, you live or die by the quality of your work. And she passed that on. She put that ethos through everybody in the company. You're only, you know, it's like, I suppose the, uh, the Hollywood equivalent is you're only as good as your last hit. Right. Um, and it's just about, I think, developing that obsessive nature. We're making sure everything is as good and as great as it can be. However, that's got to be balanced with, uh, I have another saying, I'm not sure if it's on my website, but it's the art of the possible. Um, so it's about, if, if, you, if you treat things like you're, you're striving for greatness, but you can only work within uh, what you've got. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your limitations need to be uh, limiting you, if that makes sense. Sometimes limitations actually can liberate you. If that makes sense. So here we are doing circles where I have no studio. I can't get actors together. My best connection for them is uh, using Zoom. Uh, that might be, that might bring its own issues like delays or lags or whatever else. But um, how do we, you know, that, I'm, I'm talking about the technical execution here as well. That I'm like, you know, I, you know, I can't get actors together. So I find another way. This is about 
being adapting. And I mean, that's that's the way to do it. That makes the possible, you know, there are other possible routes that could have gone. And then as well, the other fact is that uh, Brendan, very brilliantly with that story, he wrote in, <clears throat> excuse me, he wrote in the fact there were phone calls. So now I'm thinking about, well, you know, what would necessarily be a hindrance of doing this system is if I had several actors and they're all on different mics and different room qualities and they all had to be in a scene together. You know, what happens if one actor has, uh, you know, a fire truck going off in the back, like we talked about, and the other doesn't. Um, but this, this, this was very easy, you know, because everyone is on their own phone, in their own circle, in their own isolation. Um, that actually took away a lot of those, the story turn that limitation or those technical problems on their head and made them advantages. So if an actor's microphone was different, you could put a different voice quality to it where you can just say character X is on a Samsung and the other one's on an iPhone. There you go. doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so yeah, but it's, it's, it, I think it's that do or die spirit that you've got to, you know, push it as, as, as far as you can. And that, that's another thing with like um, understanding, you know, podcast storytelling is that um so again like someone someone said that the microphone is your best friend it, it's gonna know if uh, i'm being forced if i'm putting on a voice and i'm saying hi seth yes let me tell you about podcasting right you're gonna hear that because the microphone is honest the microphone doesn't care <laughs> doesn't care if you're lying it doesn't care if you're insecure it doesn't care if you're comfortable but what it will do it will tell you it will tell you these things so you know looking at it from a you know point of view that's uh, you know this is a this is a medium where the story is told from the microphone you know you've got to remember that that same uh, same level of work has to apply to everything else you're doing your editing your, your dialogue your um, yeah, yeah. The sound design, you know, it's it's about you know understanding that you have to be meticulous about every single aspect because this is not an experience which people will treat as wallpaper. This is something they want to be immersed in. You know, it's 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 difference between watching a murder mystery on television and going to a murder mystery event. One of those is a radio experience. The other is the podcast, you know, and, you know, that I think that fanaticism for, because we started so long ago, I think, you know, we were the first to realize that, you know, the, the actual immersion in the piece, because it's sound can be broken so easily, so, so easily by, again, this is another great note I once got, which I was so, I turned in my first thing as a director. And I was so proud of it. I, I thought it sounded beautiful. And, uh, you know, probably looking back at it now, it's probably horrendously heightened and uh, could do with more subtlety because it was a comedy, my first thing I ever directed. Um, but uh, I got, you know, I think this is great. And I got a note back saying, uh, you used a looped sound effect there. Oof. And it was, it was the fact that, wow, someone, like, I, th I, think, I think it must have been Mario, but she'd actually noticed the sound effect repeated just in the background. And that is something that, you know, say on radio, I think you would, you would get away with, but it then taught me, it's like, no, and, you know, when it comes to podcast storytelling, I suddenly realized you've got to be so bespoke 
So there's all sorts of tricks I do that, you know, if, if there have to be repetitions, you know, it's like, um, you know, oh God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil half of my work right now. But, you know, if, if, some, if something gets repeated, you know, I might slightly manipulate the timing or the pitch or the reverb. So basically that way you can reuse the same sound effect or phrase but it's actually having the attention to detail to go, well, you know, if I said and, and, and three times in a row, if you loop that, it would just sound like a machine repeating my word. But if I don't perform and, and, and for you naturally, I have to find a way to make it not sound like a machine. You see what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? It's got it. It's that it's like these brush strokes you have to apply to the work to, you know, cause the ear is always looking for your ear is always looking for an excuse to not believe what is going into it if this makes sense this is why like um when you hear a dodgy accent on an audio piece you just do you, you know what i mean you get that cringe feeling and you stop listening because mm-hmm. the microphone's being honest and it's telling you that is wrong so your ear is going nope don't like it don't like that <laughs> don't like that french accent because that french accent you see you get away with it on film a little bit you know, bless her. I, I always cite Natalie Portman in Fever Vendetta as an example. Because um, her act, because clearly that film must have been shot in some sort of sequence because of her hair, right? Because of mm. uh, spoiler uh, for a 15 year old <laughs> movie. Uh, because that she has her hair shaved in the middle of the film. And you can tell those earlier scenes, she's not as secure on her English accent as she is in the later scenes. Her accent is much better towards the end, right? Um, but you kind of get away with it on film because you can look at Natalie Portman and you know what, she's very pretty. And you can, you can, and other things are going on and the sound is just part of the story. But if you strip everything else away for when you're in the podcasting space, you just have the sound. And your brain and your ear are always going to be looking for the wrong. I know it's, I know it's insane, but they're always looking for the wrong. And trying to find trying to find the level where something is good enough and it is right is incredibly difficult. Um, and I think I think that just comes with time and time uh, with time and practice. Um, but you know, I think I think that's what you mean by the, the quality of your work because we we you know the work we make in this space is challenging uh, the listener to to not find fault with it. I love the ideas you were describing because you've actually in some way answered one of my follow-up questions. Um, and was it, it was really, was it the art of the possible? What do I mean by that? <laughs> oh no. The art of the possible is such a lovely description. Like as soon as I heard that I was right there with you, actually what really stuck with me in that moment as you were describing all of it was the idea that if you're, if you're doing anything in which you're asking the participant to suspend their disbelief, they're looking for ways that they can interrupt that because so much of it might seem impossible, unlikely. It's so separate from the world they're living in. And yet you're trying to say, look, I'm giving you all the reasons why this is a place you can immerse yourself in. So if your ear is always looking for that distraction, you're always trying to find the ways to keep their suspension maintained, to keep Mm -hmm. them immersed within that world. But then when you were talking about the microphone not lying, And I was earlier thinking about what you had said, which was this idea of seeing sound. You write in your description, turn the microphone into a mirror. 
because the mirror never lies. You know, it's one of those things mm -hmm. we'll always say to people about fitness or health. It's like, take a look in the mirror. I, I was lucky enough as a young man to pick up some boxing and it was a transition out of soccer for me. And mm -hmm. I remember people would tell me, oh, if you want to get better at your form, look in the mirror. It's going to tell you everything you're doing wrong. And yeah. there's simply nothing you can do about that except make the adjustments until the mirror is showing you what you want to see until you're reflected the way that you are uh, striving for or aspiring mm -hmm. to. And, and with that, then suddenly I was thinking to myself, you've now created this introductory introduction for me into this idea of seeing sound now, because as soon as you talked about it in that way of it being a mirror, demonstrating not only, uh, as you said earlier, when someone is saying they're an actor and they go to perform and it's almost like the, the pressure is squeezing them so that they're getting louder and performing and becoming, and then when that pressure's off, they, they sort of become that person who's not straining, not trying, not being squeezed. Um, and how you were talking about a dodgy accent and the microphone picking it up and, and sort of letting, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, because it's like that mirror, it's like you see it in a second and there's no distraction. You don't have the benefit of an attractive actor who can sort of fool you into going along with things until they eventually develop to the, the quality that you know they should be. But mm. you're, you're asked right from the beginning when you're listening, like, don't, don't give me a reason to tune out right now. You yeah. Keep me immersed in this because as you said, there's, there's a huge difference between going to one of these productions or experiencing a professional production and how one is like radio <laughs> and the other is like a podcast performance. That was pretty amazing. I was wondering, did I miss anything about the idea of seeing sound that you've touched on and that I'm beginning to understand, but that also could be more, um, better explained by someone who has uh, a more complete understanding of seeing sound because of the ways not only you described it, but that you introduced that idea earlier. No, not really. I mean, this, this is a weird thing. It's like, uh, I, I can look at uh, my, my, my soundtracks and I can, you know, I can see, you know, before I hear it, I can see the glitches, right? You know, I mean, it, obvious things like peaks and drops and stuff like, you know, if, if something's too hot, you know it, that's that's obvious but it, it's just like borrowing down into the waveform itself i start to like see oh that's a pop that's a glitch that's a mic strike there's a there's a donk there you know i, I can analyze those those tracks and see them without listening um without listening to without listening to the piece but also as well i think it comes with i like having I think very very sharp ears um, and being able to pick on um, you know I can, I can just hear when sometimes things are a bit too clipped or just need a tiny little bit of you know what I mean it's it, it's it's almost like I can just get into the finer detail of the sound and through a combination of looking at the track and hearing it and not necessarily in that order you know, or sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's one or the other. Um, I can, you know, my ear, I don't know if there's something wrong with them, like they're hypersensitive or something, or <laughs> hyper sharp. Um, but I can sense, you know, just listening to it when, when, some, when something's not right with the sound. Um, and that comes from the, the actor's voice. It might come from the technical quality of the file. It might come from, say, something in the mix. Um, 
so it's just i think it's just a, a sensitivity that's uh i mean this is the thing as soon as brendan pitched circles I, I saw the podcast i saw how i was listening to it and i saw what story that was going to tell me my imagination so it was like inception like there was layers of my imagination within layers of my imagination and it was like okay cool 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 right okay cool 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 cool, cool. um but yeah with with you know I, I just don't i don't know how to describe it but it's just something like you know if if the sound is playing uh you know i i love audio because i genuinely do think it is the most visual medium because it is the most unique medium we we can listen to circles and we will both see different things but for both of us it will both be as real if that makes sense uh the version we imagine we our brain will be putting pictures on uh on our although someone said to me the other day they were listening to spring hill and it said it started to evoke smell in them they were listening to it and they could start to actually smell where they the 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 the, the scenes and i went okay all right that's the oh. first <laughs> I, I i've had i've had covid i can't smell anymore i have to smell uh, it's oh, true wow. it's great for diapers though uh so um wow. uh so yeah but it was like the it's like this is a difficult question so stop me from uh, forgive me if i'm stalling a bit but try and imagine it like if there is a if there is a cinema in my mind and the screen is ahead when i'm receiving the sound it's those glitches and flaws which will be like uh do, do you remember when you used to go do you, do you remember cinemas um so <laughs> you, you you would sit there and watch a film and you know sometimes the, the like in the old days of when it was on celluloid like the film might knock out a sink or the reels weren't quite right <laughs> it's just having that acute sensitivity where I, i'm this i'm visualizing the sound and i want it just to be not necessarily a passive experience, but it, like it's washing over me. And when it's wrong, it, draw, it, it draws my attention. If that makes sense. I stop relaxing and my brain starts attacking it. And, and, and that's part of the visualization process because I'll be sitting there listening and it, it will disturb my visualization of, of, of the sound I'm receiving. And, you know... I, it's, it's, I don't think this is a technique you can be taught, but certainly if you learn to be aware of the moments where, you know, for other people, it just might be listening to something and they go, eh? You were? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, if you have that moment, if you have that reaction, something is wrong. Something is wrong with your storytelling right there. It doesn't matter what it is, but particularly in audio, because it's just you and the story. That's it. There's, there's, there's no excuses. There's nothing else that you can distract you or you can you, you can sugarcoat it with. But if, if those glitches or flaws are there, your brain is instantly going to going to shut down. So, I think, you know, if if my ability is unique or reasonably unique, and I'm not saying it is, then I can't explain it. But what I can tell you to do, if you are listening to audio. Uh, scripted audio fiction and you have a reaction where that doesn't feel right or that's weird that that's the thing to act on that that means there's there's a problem there somewhere it could be the performance it could be the sound design it could be the scripting 
it, it could be a technical issue, but that, that, that is the, the gut reaction you're looking for, I think. I wondered if you were, if when you experienced it, if it was something that was visual, if it was something that you could see almost like see the performer, see the performance, see what it was that was happening. But your description shows me that it's like that. And yet it's so much also your interpretation of that sound and the visual that you're creating in order to sort of see what's going on, hear what's going on and, and recognize what it is that's different or what it is that you want and whether or not this matches with that or how and why it doesn't and, and what you can do if possible to fix it. Um, I, I, I love that idea of the cinema. I do remember going to movies. I remember actually while you were describing it, being a kid, I grew up in a very religious home. And uh, one of the things that was on all the time was a religious radio station. But part of it on Saturdays was a few uh, audio uh, scripted fiction that would be broadcast and it was uh, with moral lessons and about different characters, but one was a ranger somewhere in the woods and one was a small town with just uh, a regular set of characters and developing stories. And, and that was really important for me to create a picture in my own head. And then later when I would see the drawings that they would have going with it, I'm going, well, that doesn't look like anything like I pictured it. But mm -hmm. my, my own story was always being created when I heard things. And later when I was trying to write, I would want to picture the thing that I saw happening and then try and capture it on page. So your description of listening to it, letting it wash over you, feeling like it's a cinematic visual that's occurring within your head as you're listening. For me, those are great ways for me to enter that experience with you and, and sort of get that understanding um, without having the same personal connection that, that you do from your time in theater. And hopefully between the two of us, these might be things that the listeners can go, okay, we see what they're saying, or, okay, these guys are just having their own conversation. We'll have to, you know, trust that they yeah. know what they're describing to us. But I love <laughs> the idea of you seeing sound and the ways that you've demonstrated how you see it, either from when it disrupts the story or from what you're able to glean from the microphone and what it's reflecting back to you from an actor's performance. Those are all some amazing insights, man. I, I really appreciate it. It, it, it. it created a great idea for me. So I, I, I oh, love that you. you were willing to expound on that, however difficult it might have been answering that question. I hope I didn't put you through your paces no, too much no, on that's that fine. That's <laughs> right. It's, it, it, it's, it's lovely to sort of have my processes challenged because, like I say, everything has been self-taught. We don't uh, necessarily, unless you learn at somewhere like the BBC, um, you have to, you know, we're more like indie gorilla makers, if that makes sense, you know, like little low budget people who are given a camera and we go off and, you know, hopefully scrounge up a few, a few dollars and uh, produce something that, um, you know, ends up being good. And like I say, there's a lot of good people here in the UK who are very, very good at that. But you know, we're all self-taught. Every everything I'm describing, apart from my acting, but even then, I didn't do voice acting at a university. Um, you know, I had to teach myself how to write. I had to teach myself how to direct. I had to, you know, teach myself how to produce. Oh, thank God for Doctor Who Confidential. That that show <laughs> that show taught you teaches you so much. Um, you know, uh, so you know it was. And, and, and this is what I'm talking about, the insanity of it, because like I got this amazing um, ADR job 
uh, that's the dubbing automatic dialogue replacement. Yeah, on a <laughs> on a major on a major feature film, um, because the casting director went, uh, you can do London, and you work in that audio company, so you must know what ADR is. And I went, yes, of sure, <laughs> sure. And uh, within 24 hours, I was in like the most expensive studio in Soho, in in, in London's fancy West End. Um, but you know, I'd actually learn. You know, I went out and I self-taught myself how to do ADR in less than 24 hours' notice. At least the basics and the techniques. And, and that's the thing to say. It's like, if anyone's listening to this saying, oh my God, this, this sounds like too too huge or epic or extraordinary to do. Um, don't, don't, don't be scared because it's all out there. And now you have the benefit of, you know, 15 years of us who were in podcasting before it was podcasting who have done it. And we're... We are a community. We, we, we do still look after each other. We do st- There's a thing called Audio Drama Hub on Facebook where, um, you know, everyone from Dirk Mags down to Mr. George Rogan, who started last week, who's suddenly got into it and knows nothing about audio drama, joins the hub. And it's one of those really lovely places because the same three weeks, the same basic starter questions get asked and everyone goes, yeah, that's no problem. And we just start again. You know what I mean? Wow. Um, and I, I just love that the fact that, you know, we're not a fiercely competitive industry right now. Um, it's genuinely, you know, a particularly nice bunch of people and um, a really cool gang that, you know, have, have, have decades of combined experience out there. And like I say, for, for most of us, it's self-taught, it's self-learned. Um, and you know, if someone like me can do it, anyone can. So don't worry. Give it go. Go ahead. Give it a crack. Um, you, you've got you've got microphone. You know, like what microphone do I use? We got voice memos on your phone. Just this is what I say. Like write a script, two minutes long, two of you. Record on your voice memos. Stitch them together. Get some free editing software like Audacity or Reaper. Right. Uh, and do you know what you're going to do? You're going to learn to. You will have learned how to perform on a microphone using your phone and you're going to learn how to teach yourself editing okay first two steps done and then when you're listening to things say oh i don't like that you're going to teach your subconscious how to start directing yourself you know what i mean it's just it's a very sort of hands-on diy uh do-it-yourself um process i think because that 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 training isn't available so you know uh, i had a i had a very very big tv Maybe I shouldn't tell this. Now I'm going to tell it. So, uh, a very, very big TV Thank you. producer, <laughs> very, very big TV producer from Europe, uh, zoomed to me last week, and he said, uh, "I was, I was very keen to talk to you. He's very good friends with a huge UK TV writer who's good friends with an actor that I know, and that guy set it all up through that chain." He said, uh, "I'm very grateful you took my Zoom because uh, I, I was very intimidated looking at your website." And I went, wow. what, what, <laughs> you, you make this, this, and this, and this, and this, what, okay, fine, bring it in, play it cool, play it cool, um, but you know, this, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's what I'm saying, like, I, I'm more than happy to help, and like I say, everything I've learned along the way, I've had to teach myself, 
and that's just the process of being open you know listening particularly you know i think i think the greatest teacher actually has been my failures your failures teach you a lot more than your successes and you know there have been a few um but they've been informative and they've they've helped change change my approach and always those failures come about because you know what I, i'm talked out of trusting my gut and i think you know that that's a big thing particularly as we're in this world west phase right now with scripted fiction it's like please please trust your gut trust your guts um because there are no rules at the minute there are a lot of people chancing their arm and there are a lot of people out there who just want to make good work um but you know your 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 gut will instinctively tell you if something doesn't feel right or doesn't sit right so so trust it because the only times things have gone massively wrong for me is when i was talked out of, out, out of doing that um and there's a there's a reason why we have gut feeling you know that, that intuition <laughs> yeah that intuition have it have it because it's not a formalized it's not a formalized industry right now we're still on that cusp between being a community overall you know all, all you know we are podcasters we are a community globally and within that we've got the scripted audio fiction uh niche and uh, we're a community within that community um but there's no standardization there's no industry yet it is coming believe me i think uh, i think the lockdown is going to accelerate that process quite dramatically um all you all you've got to rely on out there is your instincts because like i say there, there is no handbook this yet there are no training courses for it yet there are no and they're welcome they will come he said mysteriously uh, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but um the, these you know it's still work in progress so you, you you've got to rely on that intuition that's because that's, that's all we got at least i'm going to say at least for the next two years that's 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 what we have left at the minute to, to run that's on. really encouraging because i remember when i first started doing this part of audio it it was me at an, a, a a gaming convention working on a story for it going i don't know what i'm doing but i'm going to try recording this experience and if you listen to my first podcast it's me saying hi i'm at this event that I'm going to see how this works. I'm recording myself at the following event and I don't know. Okay. Well, here's what's happening around me. I just started describing things around me. I think it ended up being like five and a half minutes and I I've listened to it once or twice and thought I, I can't listen to that right now. It's not encouraging. <laughs> it's more just frustrating because I, I can hear all the things going on uh, mm. in my voice through the microphone that tell me what I was experiencing in that moment and exactly how it was, you know, disrupting or confusing. And along the way, I've tried to teach myself things, but hearing you describe your own process of, hey, it's a learning as you go thing. I think that can be, I mean, it's, it's inspiring and reaffirming for me, but I think anyone else listening can hear that and say to themselves, well, that's, that's part of what I'm doing too, or that's what I want to be doing. And the idea that, hey, your process of discovery is about going out and doing and learning from that. And then you know, sort of shoring up your understanding through more and more experience and trusting what you believe is the best way to go. And again, always learning from it. Uh, that's a reminder that for a lot of people, they, they might be thinking, you know, how do I get into this? How do I know when I'm doing it well or right? How do I get better? You've just given them a roadmap. <laughs> well, that's the thing, <laughs> which right? is... Cause, yeah, because Richard Eyre, sorry, uh, Richard Eyre, 
again, when we were talking about it, it, you know, it's like someone said, how do you deal with failure? And you said, well, you know, best advice I can give you is the best advice I ever got, which is where well, you get up and next time you fail better. So <laughs> the better your failures get, uh, the more, you know, you're on the right track, you know, but uh, there's a, there's a lovely thing David, uh, David Bowie said uh, about this. And I, I think this is part of knowing the difference. It's like he said, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's a lovely metaphor. He said, uh, to push yourself as an artist, it's like wading out to sea. And it's just when you reach the point where your toes can just about touch the ground underneath you. So you're bobbing, but the ground is there. But you see what I mean? It's like that little in-between moment between, am I floating and am I sinking or am I on shore ground? He said, that's exactly where an artist needs to be to be better. And I think a lot of the time is uh, when, when you end up failing, it's because you've jumped in the deep end. So, but you know what? You can always get out and go, oh, well, I jumped in too deep there. Correct. And, it, you know, wade into the water. So like, like I say, when I talk about the, the progression I've had, actor to writer, writer to director, director to producer, I'm now producer and exec producer. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like traditional manager at structure where, okay, you get a promotion, Jack. Congratulations, off you go. Uh, here's a bigger desk. Because uh, trust me, it's still the same desk. But it's, it's a case of, you know, just when you're, when you're ready to take that next step uh, and start bobbing and my toes are touching, um, <clears throat> then, I mean, you know, you, you're in, I think, I think that's just, like, it, it doesn't feel like it, but it's both the safest and most dangerous place you can be because you can always you can always row back but the chance of being able to swim forwards or grow that little bit taller is is uh something something no one no one should turn down i'm I'm always of the belief that uh you know when, when we reach the end of our lives and hopefully you know for the most part we will go quietly peacefully with plenty of time to look back um I, I, I always suspect the thing that you will regret most when you're in that position is the thing is you will look back and regret the things you did not do. So, you know, when opportunities come along, why not? Okay. Sometimes, yes, you will fall in the deep end, but if you end up swimming, that, that could end up being a, a very, very beautiful thing. So, you know, do, do you want to look back and say, for the, for the sake of fear of failure, I said no. Or for the risk of failing, but maybe doing something brilliant, I will say yes. So do it. Just get it done. Uh, uh, Jack, I, I, I couldn't ask for uh, a better way to, I think, in wrap up so much of what you've already been mentioning, but to give it such a aspirational and uplifting tone to to you know, leave people with that idea of what do you really want to say at the end that I tried or that I didn't? And what will that experience be like that, that you can look back and, and know, you know, I, I was willing to take the risk. I was willing to try and, and not have as many of those doubts, as many of those um, feelings that that's a regret for me. You know, the fact that I didn't do it, but the idea behind, well, you can, prevent that now by simply trying for the things you're afraid of taking the risk and knowing that you can say to yourself afterwards, I did try or fail success or fail. 
you know, I took yeah. the risk. Sure. Um, I mean, as, as a great philosopher once said, do or do not, there is no try. Ah, uh, Yoda was a wise man. So wise. <laughs> I thought um, that was Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I always mix the two between, and that's where I get into the most fun. Um, Absolutely. Jack, the best thing is, too, you, you were moving into, I've begun asking, you're familiar with the Proust interview? Sorry, with the what, sorry? With the, the Proust interview, which has been paraphrased on shows like Inside the Actor's Studio, um, where a series of questions are asked of every guest. And mm -hmm. the idea is just sort of, you know, an insight into the person's thinking. Yeah, sure. Um, I've, I've chosen just one of those questions, and it's the one that I usually say for the end of a conversation. Sure. And you, you touched upon it already with that idea of the end of your life. Do you want to look back and say that you had, you know, regrets or that you took risks? And the question that I always love from the Proust interview, you know, what happens when you die? And I was always struck by that, that idea of, of what people think about. So I just took it in one further elaboration to say, mm -hmm. At the end of our lives and all of our lives come to an end, you know, would you like there to be something on the other side of our life when it ends? And if there is something, would you like someone to be there? And is there something you would like them to say to you if they are? Oh, okay. So I, I, I'm kind of in the camp where I think when, when you go, that's it. So that, that's why I try and make creatively the best of life now. Um, I'm always struck by the fact that uh, on Christmas Day here in the UK, we're still entertained by two comedians, uh, one of which died nearly 45 years ago. You know, it's that saying, you die, you die twice. When will you die? Once when you die and once where people stop saying your name. So uh, I, I, love, I love the opportunity, you know, to try and leave some great art behind. Um, you know, even if one person picks up those podcasts in the future it's still one person who will be entertained beyond my days so yeah it's I, I you know but would I like there to be another side yes I would and who would I want to be there oh gosh it's a very tough question I save it for the end no. for that reason specifically <laughs> no 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 it's good I okay so I think I think I think I think okay so um there was a friend of mine his name was uh sam sam towler and uh i got to know him uh when i was in the scouts um you know because you know my parents had to get rid of me some evenings of the week <laughs> and um he was a very very brilliant mind um he was very very keen and set to be uh you know, he wanted to leave politics uh, for his his career, and uh, he was you know so so gifted that the party he was uh, attached to wanted him to basically run for the the London Authority for a seat here, but he wanted to be a member of Parliament, and that he, he just said that's not the route I want to go, and he was involved with the the Olympic planning for the twenty twelve London Olympics, and he. Uh, he sadly contracted uh, stomach cancer. Um, and I always remember, somehow he managed to ring me in the London dungeon 
in a place, my phone went off in a place in the middle of the summer, which is the busiest time of the year. Uh, he rang me in the middle of the summer in a section of the London dungeon where you can't receive phone signal. My phone went off. And for some reason, all the tours stopped for the duration of his phone call. And I just thought, literally looking back on it, was that was the last time we spoke. So if he, if he, if he was there on the other side, um, I think I'd like to see him. We'd definitely go for for a, a beer because there's got to be. If you're telling me there's another side, there's got to be beer. Sorry, that's just a deal breaker. Uh, we'll sit down like we used to, and I'll just say, uh, look, you know what? You probably know something to involved. We went went well. But I'll always, I'll always treasure that one-off, random, strange phone call that never should have happened at the time. And, you know, I, th- I think maybe subconsciously that just sits with me as an example of, you know, you know, life is short, death is long. And Sam could have done so much with his life um, that, it, you know, it leaves me... Uh, I think, you know, for every person that happens to, it leaves a little, I think a little splinter in your soul, but that splinter says, get on with it. Crack on, Jack. Get it done. Thank you, Jack. Because you never know when it's (laughs) going to be, you never know when it's going to be your turn, right? Agreed. Agreed. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. That's right. Um, My pleasure. You know, I know a lot of folks out there would love the chance to follow up with you. Is there a best way, a best avenue, a best platform? Are you all over the social media or is there only one route to you? Is there any way you would like to let people know how they can get in touch uh, with you? Man? I wouldn't say I'm all over the social. Social media left me behind at Instagram. I don't understand it. I'm sorry. Uh, but um, <laughs> you, can find me, you can find me through uh, Twitter. I am on uh, WW, uh, sorry, Twitter is Real Jack Bowman. Real Jack Bowman. You can follow me there and um, reach out to me if you want to, if you want to follow me publicly. If you want to contact me privately uh, to discuss anything that's come up today, including whether there are beers in heaven, that's absolutely fine. Uh, you can go to my private website, uh, uh, not well, my public website, I should say, and contact me through through that privately, which is www.jackbowman.net. www.jackbowman.net. There's a contact form, and anything there goes to me. Ignore the bit that says, like, if you send me a work offer, that's going to go to my. What I mean is, if you email work to me through that website, I'm going to fire it off to my agent rather than, you know, uh, I. I can't take on solicited work if that makes sense but anyone who wants to have a chat a conversation about any aspect of uh scripted audio story uh, fiction telling can um get it get in touch that way and if anyone wants to um check out circles as well i'll just give that a quick plug if that's okay um the, the the exciting news is that uh we've just been picked up for distribution by the evergreen uh podcast network um, so if wow. you go to Evergreen, you can pick us up there. We're one of two Halloween specials they're pushing out in the scripted space uh, in the next week. And uh, that has uh, all the social media for that is uh, Here Circles, Instagram, your Twitter, apart from Facebook. And on Facebook, we are Circles Podcast. Um, so there's, there's a million ways to find me. I'm on LinkedIn stuff as well but uh go go to my website drop me an email and 
just to say either I'll get back to you straight away or within four months. There's no in between. That's, that's just generally how my schedule is. But um, you, people can get hold of me there. And I'm, I'm more than happy to talk if anyone needs help or guidance or just wants to know more about this crazy, crazy world of scripted audio fiction storytelling. Jack, I know I'm going to be one of those people who wants to know more. I'm going to want to have you back on. I've got a great friend named Steve J. Ray, who's a huge Doctor Who fan, who could probably talk your ear off and you guys vice versa for like an hour and a half. And I just sit in the back, like chuckling away and taking <laughs> notes and having a grand old time. And between that and all the other projects that uh, we didn't have a chance to go in depth and so much more, um, I would love to have you back on. I would love to Thank keep you. talking with you about, oh, my, my pleasure, man. You've, uh, I keep watching the clock and going, how many more seconds can I steal from this guy's life? Because right now I, I'm happily taking them and recording them down. And I'm <laughs> thankful for each and every tick of the, the second hand. Oh, no, so, no, like, you know, it, my, my, my pleasure. It's, it's, it's you know, you know it's, been, it's been fun. It's been fun this evening. Thanks, questions man. I've never, never <laughs> been asked before. So that's my goal. I'm, I'm just trying to tell another original story, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, with Thank that, I'm, hey, it was my pleasure, Jack. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. And folks, look for the liner notes for all the ways that you will have a chance to reach out and find Jack. I'll include all that information. And um, I'm looking forward to having him back on. It's been a blessing. Really. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the secret of life is. And that brings us to the end of episode number 81 here on Storytelling with Seth. I'd like to thank you for joining me, and I'd like to thank once again Jack Bowman for an amazing conversation. I was provided with amazing insights, and I hope you enjoyed them as well. If you have any thoughts, questions, you would love to follow up with me, Jack, about any of the things we discussed or about any of the episodes you hear here on Storytelling with Seth. I would love the opportunity to follow up with you, talk with you more. You can find me out there on Twitter as One More Singleton, on Instagram as Seth the Writer. You can find me just by typing my name, Seth Singleton, and the word story into a search engine, and whatever you find. Let that be your guide, whether it's to a conversation with me or content that you find that you enjoy. More importantly, as I listen to the soft rumbles of my French bulldog, Bruno, in the distance, and I have the opportunity to be so grateful to remember this conversation, share it with you, and recognize those moments that feel a little bit more normal, I can't help but look forward to every opportunity I have to do that thing my father taught me to share a great story, to hear it, pass it on, and if I'm lucky enough, to be a part of it. If I can point to one of the first legacies that my father passed on to me and I look forward to carrying on for him, it's the joy of telling and sharing and hearing great stories. Thanks for joining me on this one. Please don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Jack with any of your thoughts and questions. Also, I know this is a time for Thanksgiving, for holidays, for family, for spirit. And may those continue to be part of the great soundtrack of our memories, our lives, no matter how they may take shape 
in what forms they may occur, as long as they are filled with the people we love and the reasons why we love them, even begrudgingly. It's a gift, and one I'm happy to remember and look forward to sharing with you.